Welcome, everyone, to today's podcast for the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology. This is Wayne Stacy, your host and the ex- executive director for BCLT. And today we're going to talk about the Juno IP case and how a, a billion dollars disappears overnight. Uh, with me, we have two experts from Wild Gotchel on I guess, life sciences litigation and this particular case in the, the decades and in making that it was, we have Andrew Giesier and Elizabeth Weisserwasser, both from Wild. So thank you both for joining us. And I'm just going to lead with, I guess, the basic question here for you is, you know, why did the court flip this billion-dollar verdict? So, Wayne, uh, this is Liz, and I'm here with my colleague, Andrew. Thank you so much for having us. Um I'll start briefly, I think, with just framing the issue up, and then I'm going to turn to my colleague, Andrew, <clears throat> to focus us specifically on um, the Kite case. So I think it's important to understand the the, the framework on which the uh, Kite case was decided. This, this case uh, is really about 35 U.S.C. Section 112. It's the part of the Patent Act that requires that uh, claims – uh, meet the requirements of, of written description and enablement. The underpinning is you can't, uh, you can't claim and own what you haven't invented, what you haven't described, what you haven't taught the public how to use. A number of decades ago, I would say really, um, beginning in the early nineties, in fact, I was a law clerk with Judge Lurie, uh, at the time. This doctrine really started to evolve in the biologic and pharmaceutical space of really looking hard at genus claims directed to biologic or chemical entities where the genus is not defined by the structure of what's claimed. It's defined instead by the function, trying to claim molecules by what they do rather than by what they are. And Judge Lurie, uh, my former boss in particular, was very focused on trying to discern what is permissible in terms of claiming by function and what is not permissible. And it's really beginning there that we see the origins of this doctrine that has now really come into its its own in a very uh, fulsome way um, with the Kite case. And so this has been developing over the 90s, uh, 2000s, 2010s, and the Kite case is really just the latest, I would say, in a long uh, series of cases that where the federal circuit has invalidated uh, genus claims that, again, are, are covering a genus of molecules defined uh, by what they defined by what they do uh, rather than by what they are. And what we have seen is that this has resulted in the federal circuit overturning a number of jury verdicts. Kite is not the first one. The federal circuit in Kite did flip um, a jury verdict that was over a billion. In the Idenix case, the jury um, verdict was two and a half billion. And the Federal Circuit also uh, set aside that verdict um, on uh, these same grounds. In the Amgen case, uh, the Federal Circuit uh, also set aside a jury verdict there in favor of Amgen. So I think it is important to have an understanding of the Kite case um, in this background. This is not an outlier. This is just the latest in the series, but this is a very important one. Uh, so with that, I'm going to uh, turn this over to my colleague, Andrew, to really take us through the case. Well, Andrew, I guess one of the, the first questions I would have is that 
is about how much we can learn from this case. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a question of, of fact. And the court was pretty clear that there just weren't enough facts in the record for for the jury to decide this issue. And, you know, the, the federal circuit took a few shots at the expert testimony that was put out there. So is this just an issue of an expert not putting enough in the record? Or is there something more to this? No, I don't think this was a case where they just did not develop the trial record through their expert testimony properly. I think, as Liz explained, this is really the next in uh, the next chapter in a long line of cases that are really setting this bar of what you need to do in the specification, what you need to describe in order to support these functionally claimed uh, genus claims. And I, you know, I, the, the court did note what the experts um said at, at trial, but I think at the end of the day, the impetus behind the decision was ultimately that there was just not enough in the specification to support the broad claim that uh, Joe was putting forward. Well, Liz gave us a little bit of a, a background on the, all the jury verdicts that have been been overturned. So, you know, laying the foundation for, for where we got to today, but can you give us an overview of, of how the law has really evolved on uh, the functional genus claims. Sure. So as Liz mentioned, this has been in development for many decades, and it's taking both um, written description and enablement in these cases um, in turn. At first, it was uh, the, the seminal cases were mostly written description cases, um, uh, mostly claims that are directed to antibodies that were claimed as functional binding of those antibodies and not any structure of the antibodies itself. Um, and then there was a, a series of cases that pushed the envelope on enablement, as Liz mentioned, um, with Identix and a few others, um, that again looked at the undue experimentation part of it, but we're again focusing on these functional limitations that if you're claiming something functionally, you have to be able to describe and enable all of the scope of that claim. And then recently with, um, Amgen and this, uh, Juno versus Kite case, again, it's similar antibody type stuff looking at written description. Um, the court focused on written description in this case. And it's, it's again, just kind of reaffirming that you need to describe this full scope of these functionally claimed um, genuses. Well, it might help the listener to have a, a high level understanding of what the technology and maybe more importantly, what the claims were in this case as it addressed that technology. Would you mind giving us a little background on that? Yeah, so this one was a, a little bit uh, of a unique, it wasn't an antibody. The claims were directed to uh, nucleic acid polymers, so basically strings of DNA that were used to um, program T-cells. Um, T-cells would be removed from a patient's body, they would be programmed with the DNA, and then um, injected back into the patient, usually for some sort of cancer treatment. And so the Invention here, according at least to Juno, was this backbone of this DNA structure that could be used as part of this process, which has three components, um, a zeta chain, a co-stimulatory signaling region, and then a binding element, which they claimed as um, what's known as a, uh, a SCFV, a single chain uh, fragment, a variable fragment, um, which is essentially a, a portion of an antibody that's um, engineered to be part of this this DNA chain, and that was the part of these of these three portions of this nucleic acid that's claimed. That antibody portion, this SCFV portion, was what the court focused on as being functionally claimed because 
it had to bind to a specific antigen. Um, some of the independent claims did not specify and it could bind to any antigen. And some of the narrower claims specified that it had to bind to specifically CD19 um, in order for the, the um, product to function and as well as the, 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 the claim, the, the claim to cover. So why did the court take, take exception with the, the facts presented in this case? So as I mentioned, the court was focusing on these um, functionally claimed binding regions of this DNA polymer. And the court looked at the area test, which basically um, lays out that you have to either provide a representative number of species of the genus you're claiming here, this binding portion of this DNA polymer, or um, provide uh, structural uh, common structural features to the genus that would allow a person of ordinary skill of the art to uh, appreciate the the full scope of the genus was invented. And the court pointed out that in this case, there was only two examples in the specification of these um, CD19, focusing on the narrow claims of the CD19 um, SCFVs, and those were not um, disclosed in the specification by sequence, which was um, part of the decision. The court noted that there's no hardline rule that you have to disclose those by sequence. That was not what the court found was lacking here. What they found was lacking was the representative number of species. Those two examples were not representative, they found. And then they analyzed the common structural features and looked at whether there was common structural features to those uh, that were disclosed that would make up the um, genus that was ultimately claimed. And what they found is that um, although there are common structural features to all SCFVs and all of these DNA um, binding, uh, these DNA polymers that were claimed, there was no common structural features that would allow a person of ordinary skill in the art to distinguish between which of the SCFVs would bind to any antigen or specifically to the CD19 and which would just be inoperative because they would not be able to bind. They all have the same um, structural feature at a high level. They have similar structural features at a high level, like all antibodies have similar structural features at a high level in some of the court's previous cases. But the key is that the genus only covers those that are functionally able to bind. And there was no structural features that were disclosed in the specification that would allow a posita to determine basically what's inside the scope of the claim and what is not. So, so it seems like from what you're saying that the, the missing information or maybe the, the brevity of the information in the specification was so extreme that an expert couldn't have really covered it up or smoothed it over at trial or would have been highly unlikely. Right. I think that's what the, the court ultimately concluded. And, and the, the only, you know, way that an expert would be able to kind of, as you say, cover up these failings of the specification would be if those things were known in the art at the time of the invention. And here we're talking the early 2000s when uh, I, I think it was, uh, fairly early on in this technology. And so some, you know, there's some knowledge in the, in the art, but there was not nearly enough in order for you to determine basically what's, you know, within the scope and what's outside of the scope of the, of the claim genus. So yeah, I don't think it was something that the experts could have, um, could, could have, uh, testified further on. It just wasn't there either in the specification or in the knowledge of the skill, uh, in the art at the time. So in terms of a patent prosecutor, uh, dealing with this, 
they could have actually taken a few more steps to make this a little more robust and to bed some some help to the expert, it seems like. I mean, I, I can take that one. It's a very interesting question uh, you're raising, Wayne. Is there any, are there any uh, genus claims in this area that, that claim by function rather than structure, complex biologic molecules? Are there any really that could survive? I mean, there's definitely a line of, you know, scholars and folks out in the bar who are saying the genus claim is dead, right? After all these cases, I don't think that is true. I, and I think the federal circuit has been very careful to say that they're not saying that these claims are not ever allowed, but they will only be allowed when the disclosure is really sufficient to support the full breadth. I would say from a prosecution standpoint, Certainly, you've got to hedge your bets, and you need to have claims to your actual um, molecule that you've discovered within certain degrees of homology. Um, I think that companies in this space are going to continue to include these kinds of claims, because why wouldn't you? Your competitors are doing it. But I do think that it is extremely hard um, to sustain them, I think particularly when you're enforcing the claim to cover a competitor's molecule that is very different than your own, very different than something that you've described, because in some ways that's really the nub of it. It's the federal circuit making sure that, to use the language of the Fierce versus Revell case, that Companies are not preempting the future before it's arrived. They're not trying to cover the full universe and then disincentivize others from developing competitive and, you know, potentially superior molecules. I do, I don't think there was anything different that Juno could have, could have done here. It was just simply they claimed far broadly than what they had invented. And at some level, I think you can take look at these federal circuit decisions as almost as a matter of law, these claims are invalid. It's there's not, you know, no reasonable jury could conclude that it is valid. In some ways, it's I think a determination that just as a matter of law, the spec is just not sufficiently robust uh, to support the breadth of the claims. As Andrew said, you might be able to get around that when the art is very advanced. And there was all this knowledge in the art, but then at the same time, you run into an obviousness, you know, issue, uh, there. So, uh, a lot, lot of challenges for, for functional claims. Um, I don't think they're dead, but there, we have yet to see a case come before the federal circuit in this area where the federal circuit has upheld their validity. So I would, would anticipate trial lawyers still playing with this to see if they could find a, a fact pattern that's, the federal circuit wouldn't flip at least to, you know, to, to rely on that heavy protection of a jury verdict. Yeah. I think in, in this area with these broad genus claims, it's one thing to get a jury verdict, but I do think that keeping the verdict requires, you know, as much strategy as getting the verdict itself. I think, you know, early on, if you've got a case that, you're pursuing based on functional genus claims where you're, you know, accusing of infringement, something that is not specifically described in your spec. I think you need a, a, a strategy early on 
that will not only allow you to build a, a record that will convince a jury, but the cold paper of it, the cold record itself has to be built in a way that allows you to keep any verdict you get. I think getting a verdict is important because the issue of written description is a question of fact. The WANs factors underlying enablement are also factual questions. So you certainly want to be on the side of saying, you know, that uh, having the 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 standard of review in your favor, right, of, of having that jury verdict. But I think what we've seen in the federal circuit is there's no shyness in overturning. We've seen three jury verdicts overturned fairly recently on this doctrine. Um, the Amgen one didn't have damages, but between Idenix and Kite, we've got probably, you know, almost $4 billion in damages that got overturned. We see that the federal circuit is not shy about doing that. Um, so uh, it, it, we yet to have a, see a winning strategy on it, but it's not, I don't think, the fault of the litigants. Well, where does this, this area of law go? And we know that with these kinds of numbers, people aren't just going to give up. So what happens next? Well, first of all, the Supreme Court has not yet weighed in on this issue, not for lack of trying, right? Um, Identix, uh, which is the one that lost the $2.5 billion verdict, I think uh, they, they went hard to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court didn't take the case. Um, I believe there have been a number of cert petitions in the space. I would not at all be surprised if Juno um, pursues, if, you know, if they're not successful on rehearing. Um, I don't, I, so we've seen the federal, we've seen the Supreme Court take many federal circuit cases at this point. We've seen them reverse the federal circuit many times. So I don't think it's over until, unless and until either the Supreme Court speaks or just becomes clear they're not going to speak. And at some point, the, 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 the value of these cases may become significant enough that, you know, the Supreme Court decides to take a look at it. What they do, who knows um, on that. But uh, I don't see this issue as being um, over uh, at all uh, at this point. Well, wonderful. Um, it'll be, be a great area to watch over the next, I guess, short term and long term uh, yeah. to see where it goes. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. Um, I know that a lot of folks in the bar are really trying to, you know, decide that the federal circuit mean what it says that, you know, the, um, what was it? Judge, uh, Judge Lurie, uh, wrote a concurrence from the denial of rehearing and bank in the Amgen case and, and basically said, you know, I know the bar is screaming, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, but we're just applying, you know, the law to the patents, the claims as we see them, but it doesn't mean that you know, there's not something out there that could survive. So I think folks want to see, you know, if there is something that's going to survive, what does it look like? Well, thank you both for your time today. I appreciate it. And as we uh, get more information on this topic, I will definitely come back to the two of you. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Thank you.